Verse 18. So Moses went back to his father-in-law Jethro and said to him, Let me go so that I may return to my relatives in Egypt and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now Moses is not exactly asking permission from his father, like, Hey, the God of the universe sent me, but i got to ask you if it's okay. It's just the polite thing to do. It's the understanding that I work for my father-in-law. He's dependent upon me in order to take care of these sheep. I can't just abandon and walk out of my job because loving my neighbor means, is it okay for me to leave? And so he goes to Jethro and he says this, And Yahweh said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt because all the men who are seeking your life are dead. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and put them on his donkey and headed back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand, and Yahweh said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do that you do before Pharaoh all the wonders I have put under your control. But I will harden his heart, and he will be not let your people go. This is the first time that God says he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. Now, when Pharaoh's heart actually gets hardened in chapter 7, we'll talk about what that means a lot more. But for right now, just know that the heart in the ancient world is the center of all your desires and your will. Even today, we say, follow your heart, which means follow your desires and do what you want, your will, your volition. So in the ancient world, it was not a Hallmark card. It was the will, the desire, the volition, my choices. So what he's saying is to harden means to strengthen. So it means I'm going to strengthen his will and volition against my commands. Now, we'll talk about that a lot more when we get to chapter 7. But for note, just that's what's going on there. You must say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel, is my son, my firstborn. And I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. But since you have refused to let him go, I will surely kill your son, your firstborn. Now, because we know the rest of the story, we know that's the climax, the death of the firstborn of all these ten plagues. But this is also the first time that God calls Israel his firstborn son. Now, firstborn son does not mean biological birth, because obviously Israel is not literally biologically God's son. Firstborn means title and headship. Abram had two sons. We actually had more than two sons, but the the story focuses on two. He had Ishmael and Isaac. Ishmael was Abram's firstborn born biological son. But Isaac got the firstborn title. So that shows you right there that it's not about biological, it's about title. So then when Jacob comes along, um, or Isaac, he has two sons, Esau and then Jacob. And Jacob, the not firstborn, got the firstborn title. And then Jacob has 12 sons. And the first four are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Judah gets the firstborn title, the fourth one. And so you need to understand that firstborn title does not always mean biological. It means you are my adopted son. And that's what he's saying. I'm going to adopt Israel as my son, my nation, which means you're supposed to do, in the ancient world, sonship means I do what my father does. I act like my father, I live like my father, and I do the job or the profession that my father did. Now, since the Industrial Revolution, we have the freedom to do what we want to do. But pre-Industrial Revolution, 
If your father's a coal mine worker, you're a coal mine worker. If your father's a farmer, you're a farmer. If your father's a... Very rarely would you be able to find maybe somebody who would take you as an apprentice. Only if they didn't have sons of their own. So in the ancient world, sonship means you look like me, you act like me, you talk like me, you do what I do. And I'm passing that all on. And so that's what he's saying about Israel. Israel is going to be my firstborn son. I'm going to adopt them. Meaning I'm going to restore the image of God in them. And they're going to look like me and act like me and do what I do to the rest of the world. Now, the problem is their sin nature will keep them from doing that. But that was the original intent. And so this is what God is saying, because Pharaoh also saw himself as the firstborn of Horus. So basically, it's firstborn versus firstborn who is the greater. So there's a competition there. There's an adoption there. But notice what's interesting is this is adoption. To adopt somebody means to give them all the rights of a true biological son. And that's what God is doing. This is amazing. The God of the universe is going to adopt these horrible, evil sinners who are going to complain and grumble all the time in the wilderness. And he's going to adopt them and give them all the rights of the God of the universe. That's amazing. I mean, if you've ever talked to anybody who's been adopted by a parent that they absolutely love, and I mean, now we've got these YouTube videos where the kids, they're remarried and that kind of stuff. And then you watch the video and they get for their birthday the certificate that says that they've been adopted and they're just, it's everything to them in the world. They cry, they break down, it's, it's everything. This is the God of the universe adopting you. The holy God that you're not. And he's adopting, that's what he's saying. But not only that, he's also saying, you killed my firstborn son. So this is going to end with the death of your firstborn son. And we'll talk about that more when we actually get to the plague. So not only is he adopting Israel and giving them an incredible sense of worth, but he's also saying, there's justice here, though, too. You owe me. You owe the blood of my firstborn is crying out from the soil. And I'm going to do something about it. And so that's what he's going to go back. Pharaoh, this is Yahweh. You are to let my people go so they may worship me. And this is going to end with you getting the justice that you deserve. Now on the way, at a place where they stopped for the night, Yahweh met Moses and sought to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off the foreskin of her son, and touched it to Moses' feet, and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So Yahweh let him alone. And at that time she said, A bridegroom of blood, referring to the circumcision. You're like, okay. Now, so this is what happens. They're on the way, and God gets really angry, and most likely he struck Moses down with a plague, a sickness. Because every time it says that God struck them down, all throughout the Bible, it means plague, sickness. You see this with David. You see this with Miriam. You're going to see this with um, Naaman over and over and over again throughout the Bible. It's probably why Moses doesn't do the circumcising of his son, because he's like dying on his deathbed. Okay, And his wife has got to do it. So basically his wife, seeing that his, her husband is dying on her deathbed with some horrible plague, gets why, God probably told her somebody why this is happening, goes to her son, circumcises it, and here's what's interesting. The word feet is a euphemism for the genitals. So she cuts the circumcision skin off, touches Moses' genitals with it, calls him a bridegroom of blood, God heals Moses, and they're on their merry way. You're like, okay. This is where the Bible gets really weird. Okay, now, 
I bet you if these people came from the past and watched our movies, they would think the same thing about us in a lot of ways. So before you judge them as weird and I would never do that, just turn our movies on and really think about it from a different perspective. So we all have our cultural weirdness. What's going on? First, why is God so angry with Moses? Circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17. God made it very clear that if you don't cut that extra skin off, then I'm going to cut you off from my covenant. Now, part of the circumcision, if you want to, if you want to understand why circumcision, because you're like, okay, God, that's an interesting sign of a covenant. I prefer the wedding ring. Okay. If you want to understand that, I'm not going to go through that tonight. Just go back to Genesis 17 in my notes and my audio and I break it down. And I usually call that with my students uncomfortable day number one. Yes, there are many of them. So um, it's the Bible. So go back and listen to what circumcision is. It actually makes really good sense once you understand it. But for now, you just need to know that circumcision is like the wedding ring of the Abrahamic covenant. Now imagine your spouse taking their ring off and kind of throwing it on the ground. Or or when you say, hey, you left your ring on the the kitchen sink this morning when you're washing your hands. I understand why. And you're like, oh, whatever. How are they going to take that? Because the way you treat this says everything about what you think about your marriage. That's why in Hollywood movies, when somebody wants to have an affair, they start taking their ring off. Because it says what they think about their marriage. And so the reality is, this is the sign of you saying, I want to be with God in this Yahweh covenant relationship. Now, Moses might have been circumcised, probably because his mother would have done that. But Moses has not circumcised his own sons. This also shows you what he does not know about God. He probably knows about circumcision, but he doesn't know God. And he didn't know God enough to circumcise his own sons and make them a part of the covenant. This is huge. This is like saying that you're a Christian and you love Christ and you love him and you are excited about reading his Bible and you're excited about teaching people about Christ and yet you've never opened the Bible with your own children ever in your entire life. That's damning. And so Moses is going to go into Egypt as God's covenant representative to free God's firstborn son. And he hasn't even made his own firstborn son a part of the covenant. It's kind of like the respect that we kind of lose for our pastor when his kids are like hellions. Now, not all the time when you have bad kids, that's your fault because everybody has free will. But you kind of know the first thought you have is, if you can't even control his family, how can you run the church? Now, there could be lots of reasons, and we can't judge him, but at the same time, we know that first thought. And so the reality is, this is the idea. This is showing you how disconnected Moses is from Yahweh. Yes? Question. God's all-knowing, so he knew they weren't circumcised. I would think that would have been like brought up when he was a burning bush or something. That's a great question. And that's where I was going next. Part of it is sometimes God kind of just lets you go, like with your own children. You're like, okay, 
I know they're going to screw up and I know where they're going, but I don't really want them to. And I could step in right now. But at the same time, you're kind of getting 16, 17, 18 years old. And I kind of just won't let you go. And let's see how far you go. And you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, I don't know. You got a teenage daughter and you're just waiting to see if she's going to dress a little bit more appropriately before she walks out the door. And you just kind of wait. And then right when she gets out the door, that's when you're like, I can't take this anymore. You've shown me that you don't want to do the right thing. But because now you've passed the point of no return, but now I got to step in. So a little bit is that. So what is the threshold then? It might be that he's now gotten to the border of Egypt. There's something about borders in the Bible. We saw this with Jacob. Jacob is like completely disconnected from God. He's kind of doing his own thing. And he's just kind of wandering over to the Mesopotamia to see his father-in-law or his, I'm sorry, his, his uncle, Laban. And when he hits the border of Israel, that's when God shows up in the vision of the stairway with the angels. And God reveals to them and that kind of stuff. And then Jacob goes off and he kind of lives his own life for 21 years and does his own thing. He's oblivious to God. And he starts coming back to Israel and God kind of leaves him alone. And the minute he hits the border, then God appears to him again and says, you've got to change things. And whenever people are crossing the border into whatever God wants them to do, that's where God says, you cannot cross this border without getting a lecture, so to speak. And so it could be that I've called you, you know the stories, you know about circumcision, you've been circumcised, I, you're, you're an 80-year-old man, you should be able to connect the dots well. So I've called you, you're on a mission, you've got the staff of God, you've asked your father-in-law permission, waiting for it, waiting for it, waiting for it. You're going to make your son a part of the Abraham covenant. I've used the word firstborn son. I've used the word adoption. I've used the word covenant. I've said Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about three times. Can you put it all together and make the connection? And then he hits the border and God's like, you failed. And I now can't let you out the door, so to speak, until you get this right. Because you can't, be a marriage counselor if you've never been married, so to speak. I mean, I'm not saying you absolutely cannot, but I yeah, probably cannot. Okay, so the reality is I think that's what's going on here. So Zipporah does it. She circumcises her son, and we have no idea what's going on here. She might be transferring the circumcision to her husband, which kind of like... um a passing a baton, like if he's been circumcised, I'm now going to touch this to you in order to almost be like as if you had circumcised it because you're supposed to be doing it because you're the father. So the, you have to remember the cult, the ancient world is very ritualistic. There's very much of a doing this and touching you and touching you and touching you. Well, you even with communion, you're taking the body of Christ symbolically and you're touching everybody with it so that they have become a part of it. And so she's probably doing that. Now, the bridegroom of blood is probably not the best translation. It's probably a blood relative of blood. And so the idea is probably here that by transferring this from my son and touching you, I'm making you a blood relative in this covenant as if you had done it because you're the one supposed to be doing it, but you didn't do it and you're too sick and dying right now to do it. And so this is the significance of what's going on here. You cannot represent God if you're not part of his covenant. And God just waited and waited and waited and waited, and Moses doesn't care enough. He hears Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's, the covenant has been said to him three times. You would think that somebody would think, like, I'm calling you to be a marriage counselor. I'm calling you to be a marriage counselor. And you don't even make any attempt to get married first. 
and and I know that's like a horrible illustration, but that's the best I got in like two seconds. So um, the reality is, is that he's waiting and Moses doesn't do it. And God gets angry. And Moses is the ding dong who's just not really caring. And he's not putting it all together. He's just like, well, I got to go because he'll kill me if I don't. And that's the way he views them. And so God heals them and God sends them on the way. But Zippor and his two sons go back home. You know, like, wait a minute. It, they were on their way. Wouldn't you want your wife and your kids there for this big ordeal and that kind of stuff? And da 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 da. Well, if you take a grown male and you circumcise them, they're going to be in a whole lot of pain and they're not going to be able to make a journey on foot through the wilderness. So they probably go back home because the sons need to recuperate. And then after the 11 months of the plagues and they come back out, Jethro brings his daughter Zippor and the two sons and they meet up with Moses at that time. And so here's the other thing that's really, really sad about this. Moses, at the end of 10 plagues, is going to turn into this incredible man of faith. But because of his disobedience here, his family is not going to see any of this happen. His family is going to miss out on the wonders of God because Moses couldn't obey God here. Yes, God is the God of forgiveness and restoration. And yes, he can grow your faith and he can restore you to the calling that he's called you on. But that doesn't mean there will not be consequences that you will endure for the rest of your life because you didn't obey immediately. And so who knows what his sons grow up to be? Who knows what they, what they missed out on? We're never, ever told anything about Zipporah or his sons and their faith. In fact, what's interesting is when we get to the book of Judges, the grandson of Moses is going to be one of the worst people in the Judges who's going to commit some great sins. Now, I'm not saying that makes Moses a bad father. I'm not saying that the sons were automatically bad people, but they are going to miss out on the wonders of God and the exodus of God's people because Moses can just obey right off the bat. And yes, he will be restored. And yes, God will use him. And yes, he'll become the greatest prophet that there is, but not without consequences. Not without consequences. God will always restore you, but he will never take away your consequences. There is no condemnation, but there are consequences. And that's what we must understand, is we can't not get too flippant and say, well, God will forgive me, God will forgive me, God will restore you. Yes, he will. But would you rather want a whole entire life of amazing things with God? Or do you want an amazing thing with God at the end of your life with a great forgiveness and great restoration with lots of years of baggage? How do you know that the four and the, and the sons didn't go? I know I knew that, but I, didn't, I don't read it in this chapter. Well, it goes on and says, Yahweh said to Aaron, verse 27, Go to the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and he met him at the mountain of God and greeted him with a kiss. And Moses told Aaron all the words of Yahweh, who had sent him and the signs that he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and brought together all the Israelite elders, and Aaron spoke all the words that Yahweh had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that Yahweh had attended to the Israelites and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed down close to the ground. First of all, there's nothing mentioned about any of them in this point. Okay? Mm-hmm. So there's nothing mentioned about them from this point on. Then when we get to it's Exodus chapter 18, it says, And Jethro, 
met Moses on the way to Mount Sinai and brought Zippor and the two children whom Moses had earlier sent away. And so that's when you have to wait. So here we kind of get the unspoken, they're not there. And then in chapter 18, we get the direct comment that he had sent them away when he was in the wilderness on the way to Egypt. And you think it was at this time? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's here. So good question. So that happens a lot in the Bible. You kind of have to wait. Like, God, Moses is up on the mountain. You think Moses and God are just all by themselves. And then you have to wait about two books later, and then you realize there's thousands upon thousands of angels up there too. So a lot of things don't get revealed to you until a little bit later. The names of the magicians don't come till later. Miriam's name doesn't get... So a lot of times God kind of reveals those things a little bit later. When he goes back to Egypt, everything happens just the way that God said. He tells the elders, listen... Notice that there's no, like, Moses did this miracle and that sign and this sign, and the elders are like, oh, wow, yay. And then they finally believed all that. It just basically says he went back, he told them they believed. Now, we've gotten two chapters completely devoted to trying to convince Moses to believe. We get one statement saying, and the elders believe. This is a way of the narrator really emphasizing how pathetic Moses is. You see, if you really want to show somebody strong, if you put Chuck Norris and Arnold Schwarzenegger next to each other, you just have two strong guys. But if you put Chuck Norris next to Urkel, from, then it really looks like he's strong. Okay, really strong. And so when you take this incredibly long demonstration of a lack of faith and put it right next to, and then they believed, then it really looks... So Moses just... I mean, between the circumcision and the getting angry and the please God don't send me and the five things and this sign and that sign, he's just not looking good here. And, I, and I'm, I'm really driving this in, one, because God does, but two, because we miss this. We get so used to the Sunday school stories of who Moses is at the end of his life, and we're so used to the movie that just glosses over this, that we miss one of the most important points that God is making, is that God made him who he was. That God used him despite all this stuff. That's the lesson. You see, when all you have is a Sunday school story and all you have is the movie, you think, wow, of course he can do it. He's amazing. But I could never do something like that. But then when you get this being pounded in your head for two chapters, then all of a sudden it becomes, the most important lesson you can learn here is, and Yahweh is with you too. But even more than that, Yahweh means I am the ever-present helper who is always with you. But then we're told that Jesus is going to come and he's going to be with us. If you remain in me, I will remain in you. And then he says, I will send the Holy Spirit who will come along your side. All three members of the Trinity are first and foremost described as the one who is with you. And you have all of them. And that becomes a much more powerful note here. You have to realize that application is very rarely told to us in the Bible. Our pastors spend a lot of time, more time than teaching the Bible, making applications. The Bible just tells you the story. And the Bible assumes if you're actually reading the story word for word, the application will just become obvious. Because here's the thing. The Holy Spirit can do a lot better job applying it to your specific life than I can. I mean, I can make some good application based on what I've learned after 40 years, but that's not the same as your unique situation that you're going through right now. And that's what the Holy Spirit can do. 
But that requires us to actually read through this and study it. And so they listen. Verse 31, And the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed, and when they heard that the that Yahweh had attended the Israelites and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed down close to the ground. And that's important too. They didn't just believe, but they responded with service and worship. This is the beginning of God saying, and this will be the sign to you. You will come back with my people and you will serve me. Any questions, comments? Moses versus narrator. So this is the author. Oh, hold on. There's this other voice that gets in there. And... The narrator is Moses, but you have to understand that Moses in the story is Moses' past on a journey and growth. It's like if I give my testimony of how I came to Christ, that is not who I am. That's how I used to be. So Moses is the character in the story doing the things because this is what he did. In this particular book, Moses also happens to be the narrator. But the narrator is now Moses, who now knows God under the inspiration of God, who can now give you insights from God's perspective. Right now, we're getting Moses from his life and what he did and how he responded and what he got and he did not get. The narrator is Moses with the divine insight of God looking back on his life, kind of like when you look back at your life and you're like, wow, I didn't see God there at that moment. And oh my gosh, I was so stupid there and I thought I was all that. And da, da, da. it's that hindsight, that inspiration. That's... So that's the difference between them. 